3: I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore.
4: We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war.
5: repeating we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something
6: parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting.
5: You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, and you
7: will atone
1: Hey there! This is your Matt Prophet of the Airwaves, and welcome once again to Radio Free Canada, news notes and opinions from the underground for Friday, July 29th in the year of our Lord, 2022. Now, I don't want anyone to panic. I'm not going to play any more Dr. Fauci audio for a while. I think we've heard enough from him for quite a while, don't you? Uh, I do wish I had some audio, though, of a sitting Canadian MP standing up in the House of Commons and taking Trudeau and his creepy band of grifters and cabinet to task for pushing world economic foreign policies on this country. Unfortunately, I don't have any. Because there aren't any Canadian MPs really standing up and taking the government to task. I do, however, have an Australian
4: MP taking the Australian government to task for the same thing. Have a listen. If this parliament gets it wrong, everyday Australians will suffer through inflation, or worse, stagflation for decades. And instead of working together to push Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum plan based on United Nations policies, work together instead for our country. Klaus Schwab's life by subscription, quote, is really serfdom. It's slavery. Billionaire globalist corporations will own everything. Homes, factories, farms, cars, furniture. And everyday citizens will rent what they need, if their social credit score allows. The plan of the Great Reset is that you will die with nothing. To pull off this evil plan, Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum will need to take more than just material possessions from Australians. Senators in this very chamber today who support the Great Reset threaten our privacy, freedom and dignity. Yes, they're in this Senate chamber. One Nation vehemently opposes the Great Reset, the Digital Identity Bill, theft of agricultural land use, forcing farmers off their land, and all of the Great Reset. One Nation has a comprehensive plan to bring our beautiful country back to sustainable prosperity. And in the months ahead, we will be rolling that plan out. Instead of LibLab pushing Klaus Schwab's Great Reset with the tagline, you will own nothing and be happy, One Nation advocates the Great Resist. We stand for a world where individuals and communities have primacy over predatory globalist billionaires and they're quizzling bureaucrats, politicians and mouthpiece media. One Nation accepts the challenge to provide a better future for everyday Australians. We have one flag. We are one community and we are one nation. Thank you, Madam Acting Deputy President. Wow. Wouldn't that be nice if we
1: had someone like that in our parliament? Someone who uh, isn't afraid to speak the truth. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a reporter toiling in the mainstream media in this country who actually reported on the WEF and the Great Reset and what a betrayal it is to Canadians. Instead of what we have, which are a bunch of lazy government-paid employees without an ounce of intellectual curiosity, who instead of actually doing some research, just mumble, you're a conspiracy theorist before they go back to their midday nap. So instead, increasingly, we're learning to count on a growing army of citizen journalists who try and dig for truth. Now, admittedly, they don't always get it right, but at least they try. At least they're asking the right questions. Someone I uh, follow on social media is Peter Emanuelson, who writes a blog called The Freedom Corner with Peter Sweden, and as his nom de pen, nom de plume, implies Peter Emanuelson lives in Sweden. The day before yesterday, Peter Sweden wrote this piece. It's about credit cards that track your CO2 emissions. Again, one of those stories that have been floating around for some time. I've alluded to it. One of those stories that the lazy, bought-and-paid-for journalists in the MSM label a silly conspiracy theory. Well, it's not. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy fact. Have a listen. The credit card that tracks your CO2 emissions. Remember when this was called a conspiracy theory. Imagine you're at the grocery store checkout after seeking out a fine steak for dinner. You reach for your credit card to pay, but to your surprise, the purchase gets denied. It turns out that you have exceeded your monthly CO2 limit and you're not allowed to buy this steak. You have no option but to put the juicy steak back and grab a bag of bug snacks. Does this sound far-fetched to you? Well, it shouldn't. Because in Sweden, there is now a credit card that tracks the CO2 emissions from all your purchases. and if you exceed your CO2 limit, the card will block you from any further purchases. Yes, you read that correctly. A credit card that tracks your CO2 emissions. emissions. It's here right now. The card is called Du Black, and it's been developed by the Swedish company Duconomy in collaboration with MasterCard, who are actually part owners in the company. Dublack not only helps users track and measure CO2 emissions associated with their purchases, but also puts a limit to the climate impact of their spending. So now we have a credit card that stops people from buying things, not based on how much money they have, but how much carbon emission they purch- their purchases have contributed we all need to come to terms with the urgency of the situation and rapidly move towards more responsible consumption. This is, uh, this is the, uh, the CEO of Duconomy speaking now, Natalie Green. We all need to conf- come to terms with the urgency of the situation and rapidly move to more, towards more responsible consumption. With Dublack, there is no more excuses. Through our collabor- collaboration with UNFCC... And MasterCard, du Black will enable people to do their part to contribute to the carbon reduction goals of 2030 and onwards. Again, this is Natalie Green, CEO of Duconomy. And, of course, the UN is on board with this, as is the UN Climate Change Secretariat. They say they're pleased to welcome this initiative. Now, look at what Eric... Guttwasser, head of Nordics and Baltics at MasterCard, has has to say about this. For a more sustainable way of life, radical changes are required, he said. So far, this credit card is voluntary. But how long until it becomes mandated by governments that all credit cards track your CO2 emissions? Probably not very long. In Norway, the state has already announced they want to track the food purchases of all citizens, so it's not a big leap to think they might want to do something similar with your carbon emissions. We will probably see some form of climate change passport in the future, linked to your digital ID, of course. Here all your carbon-2 or your CO2 emissions can be tracked, and if you exceed your limits, perhaps you get negative points on your social credit score. If you told someone 10 years ago that there would be a credit card that tracked and blocked you, if you exceeded your CO2 limit, you would be called a crazy conspiracy theorist. That would never happen, they'd say. Well, now it's happening. And by the way, digital ID is not a conspiracy idea or a conspiracy theory. It's already been in Scandinavia for many years. In Norway, you more or less need to have it to live modern life. It's used for online banking, buying stuff with your credit card online and much more. It'll not surprise me if digital ID somehow is involved in some future CO2 tracking. And guess who else seems very happy with the credit card? None other than the World Economic Forum. Not only does Dukeonomy have this CO2 tracking credit card, they also launched a service to help brands calculate the carbon footprints of their products. It's called the 2030 calculator. Wait a minute. There's that 2030 thing again. So, you'll ride the bike and eat the bugs. Meanwhile, the elite will be flying their private jets and dining on the finest meat. And you will be happy. The Great Reset is just another word for global communism. Climate change is just an excuse to implement a total control society. It's climate communism. The year is 2031. Your electric car locked you out because you reached your driving limit. You walk to the store to buy food. The steak you want to buy gets denied because you reached your CO2 limit. You walk home with a a bag of bugs and fake soy meat. Wow, that's uh, Peter Emanuelson, Peter Sweden. Coming up on the, uh, the big show today, uh, Art Moore from uh, earlier in the week. We're going to replay an earlier conversation uh, talking about Trump's plans if reelected in 2024 to sign in an executive order that would allow him to purge the deep state. It's called Schedule F, and uh, Art Moore from WND will be here to talk about it. Greg Carrasco, host of the Greg Carrasco Show, will be here for our There Is Something Happening Here segment, also in the second hour. Uh, We'll also replay an earlier conversation with Dr. Steve Turley, internationally recognized scholar, speaker, passionate, populist conservative. He'll talk about how the left is trying to cancel his uh, documentary, Return of the American Patriot And uh, he'll also talk about what's happening In the Netherlands, Sri Lanka, Italy And now, uh, well, perhaps here in Canada John O'Connor U.S. trial lawyer, former prosecutor Will be here He'll talk about how the FBI closed The Hunter Biden probe Amid a, a leaked Russian disinfo claim The Lim Riddler, of course, is here with this week's limb Riddle. The Sofa Cinephile, Jim Salas, with a special look at um, The Raging Bull. A new uh, 4K DVD release, I believe. Raging Bull from 1980. Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro. Great film. Uh, what else do we have? Oh, yes. A little fact check this. I'll wait till you hear what Tim Hortons is up to now. Uh, but first, the great Spencer Fernando. Independent journalist, writer, creator of SpencerFernando.com, also a campaign fellow at the National Citizens Coalition. He's here to talk about how the liberal government is launching a coordinated attack on what builds prosperous civilizations. They want us to be poor. That's Spencer Fernando. Coming up next, The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Friday, July 29th. Facta non verba.
5: We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
1: So the uh, Trudeau government is launching an all-out assault on Canadian standard of living. Why is that? We're about to find out. Spencer Fernando, independent journalist, prolific writer, creator of SpencerFernando.com and a campaign fellow at the National Citizens Coalition. Hey, Spencer, how are you?
8: Not too bad. Yourself?
1: Very well, thank you. Um, So I think it's pretty obvious now to most people that what the government is doing in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, oil and gas industry, now agriculture, is by design. They are are trying to cripple these essential industries. Uh, And by extension, uh, as you say in your article, launch this all-out assault on our standard of living. The question is, why are they trying to make us poor?
8: Yeah, well, I think a big thing is it's easier to control people who are, you know, poor and desperate. Um, you know, a society that's prosperous, people who are financially independent, who don't need, you know, the government to, you know, give them money. will provide them with too much. You know, they're, they're tough to control. They're tough to manipulate and tough to influence. So if everyone's kind of desperate and, you know, worried and thinks, oh, the government has to come in and save me, then, you know, it's easier to, to control people like that, unfortunately. And I think that's really what the government's going after. I mean, a good example, is you look at uh, what's happening with, um, you know, fertilizer, obviously, with oil and gas sector, it's not just bad for individual citizens, but it's bad for the interests of a country. Because all of our competitors, you know, China, Russia, they're they're going full ahead with energy production and food production. So we're going to fall further and further behind. And then, you know, countries led by dangerous people are going to have more power than we do. I don't think that's a world people want to grow up in.
1: Government bureaucracies have a have a tendency uh, to to grow. Uh, they're almost like these synthetic beasts. They take on a life of their own. But that requires taxpayer money. I mean, why do they want to? Are they shooting themselves in the foot? Don't I mean, why would they make taxpayers who pay their you know pay for their nut? Why would they make us poor and unable to pay those taxes?
8: Yeah, well I mean a few things. One is they will continue to maintain their own standard of living. Obviously, people like Justin Trudeau and his cronies and people in the bureaucracy they're not going to you know, suffer the same as everybody else. And uh, they'll just print money, you know, they will they will try to do that to keep themselves afloat as well. So and that that also benefits them because it devalues uh, our earnings and again makes people more dependent on the government. I think part of it is that they they see they think that people will just go along with it and they think that they'll still be able to have enough wealth to extract from people. And it's kind of similar to the attitude you see with a lot of politicians in Quebec, where they don't want to approve any new pipelines. They they really dislike the uh, energy sector in Alberta and Western Canada. But they're often, you know, glad to take the uh, equalization money, which is largely funded by profits from the oil and gas sector in Alberta and the West. So I think that's kind of the attitude in the liberal government overall is that no, we'll, uh, we'll 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 make it tougher for you know farmers to do their jobs. We'll make it tougher for the energy sector, but you know people will still work hard and produce, and they'll still let us take it from them. So it's it's kind of how they view the power relationship. You know they think they're better than other people, and they think other people will just work and submit to them.
1: I guess they're also pretending that this is all part of saving the planet somehow by making us all poor and and less able to, you know, to consume goods. Uh, But as you point out, uh, when it comes to, let's say, carbon dioxide emissions, for example, they're just falling on their own. Well, not on their own, but just as we transition from one type of economy to another, those CO2 levels are stabilizing in much of the world and, well, except for China and and actually falling. Uh, Just uh, drill down on that a little bit if you could.
8: Yeah, since, you know, about 2005, give or take, there's really been, there was a leveling off and then uh decline in emissions on average year after year in countries like Canada, the United States. And that's a decline that took place during left-wing administrations, uh, right-wing administrations, really was almost disconnected from politics. And it's because of the, uh, the longer, the long-term trends for civilizations. You know, you look at, uh, you know, when the West was becoming the Western world in general, not just Western Canada. But the West in general, when it was becoming richer, transitioned from a mostly agricultural society to an industrial society. And that, of course, needs a massive increase in emissions, largely using coal and then transitioning to oil. Uh, you know, dirty industry, not in a, a negative, you know, pejorative context, but just what we consider industry that was certainly much more emissions uh, intensive. And uh, But at a certain point, that generates enough wealth and innovation. That you then see a society move somewhat away from that, and then it becomes more about information. You still, of course, need industry, but uh, the economy becomes more based on services and information. And then it just becomes more efficient over time just as human knowledge increases. And then you see uh, economies are still able to generate wealth and growth without using uh, more energy, without using, uh, without more emissions. And so this was happening before carbon taxes, you know, before all this anti energy sector legislation. Emissions have often fallen farther in the United States than in Canada as a percentage, even when they were not imposing policies like the carbon tax and even as their energy sector was growing dramatically under pro-business, you know, presidents and administrations. So to do something doesn't make any sense because we really, without even trying, just the way civilizations evolve, we already are doing something. And then, you know, I was reading a headline, I think from, you know, four or five days ago uh, about what China's doing. And they're looking for a massive increase in coal production. So, you know, we're sitting here in Canada, basically crushing our own economy, making ourselves poor and worse off, and then China's gonna massively increase emissions and the use of coal. So it's like you know, what what are our leaders doing? I mean, they're just hurting their own people and it's not gonna do anything for the planet.
1: Yeah, it's almost like they don't like us we'll uh, take a quick time out we'll come back Spencer Fernando is a, a one-man think tank we'll talk about why we have to rethink our health care system Spencer Fernando SpencerFernando.com. back with more in a minute stay with us
5: let's get back at it on news talk saga 960 a.m it's the Richard Sarah show
1: I received this email from my uh, friend George Freund who's a uh, terrific broadcaster and this pretty much sums up health care in Canada. So a guy he knows at work went to Oshawa General for severe abdominal pain. He spent 20 hours in emergency. 20 hours. He was sent home with two days worth of pain medication. It'll be 18 months plus to get surgery. At the same time, a woman in her 80s was brought in by ambulance. She had a heart attack. She was in terrible pain, ignored for six hours. Another patient gave her aerosol nitro and the hospital freaked out. So in other words, they'll let you suffer and die and then report you to authorities for interfering in the process. The woman reported a significant reduction in pain and the uh, nitro may well have relieved the pressure, the blockage and saved her life. And then we have the nurses. A nurse's makes $27 per hour and she asks for a $2 raise. She's told no. So she quits. She goes to work for a private company contracting to the hospital They charge the hospital $100 per hour and give her $37. That's health care in Canada, my friend. Spencer Fernando, independent journalist, writer, creator of spencerfernando.com is with us. So Canada certainly has to rethink our health care. As you point out, though, Spencer... Most Canadians, not most, but we we seem to be operating under this delusion that there's only, you know, two systems. One, the system that we socialize medicine like we have in Canada or in Cuba, North Korea. And then there's, you know, the American system where everybody pays, Uh, disabuses of that notion.
0: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing?
9: A change of seasons means adventures in rain, shine, mist, or snow, or all of the above on the same day. This season, prepare for every season with the Allbirds Mizzle Collection. With all condition traction and materials and features to keep you comfy and dry no matter what, you'll be ready for anything. Go to allbirds.com and use code FRESHSOCKS for a free pair of socks with your purchase. A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code FRESHSOCKS.
8: Yeah, well, I mean, most of Europe gets uh, better results for less money spent per person in terms of healthcare. And what they do is they have a mix of public and private. In some countries, you can opt out of the public system, but then, of course, you you have to use the private one. You can't then go use the public one if you're not paying for it. Other countries, you have the delivery by private hospitals, but you go to the hospital and you provide your government health insurance card, and then the hospital bills the government. So you have still universal Access, which is normally what people think universal healthcare. They mean you can go anywhere and get healthcare. So it's universal access, but it's private delivery. And that often works well because you have the incentive, you know, companies are competing for the government contracts. And so if the government handles it well, then uh, there's some competition in the system and the system is more effective and efficient. So there's no reason we can't have that kind of system here. I mean, you could easily just say, look, the government federally will do nothing in terms of telling the provinces what to do on healthcare, and let them each experiment with different systems, and then we'll learn over time what works best. But the system we have right now obviously is not working. I mean, you, as you said, you know, someone can just go and, you know, leave the government sector and make more money, and that's that's the issue. I see people saying, oh well, you know, nurses are, are leaving, and well, you know, of course they're. It's been very tough for a lot of them. And if you want someone to keep doing the same job and the jobs are getting worse, then you have to give them something in return. And that's compensation. You have to pay them more. So our system doesn't really let you do that. You know, if it's becoming a nurse is becoming a tougher and tougher job, then well, the system, you can't do anything about it. So they will go elsewhere. And so we have to have some sort of private market incentives in the system. And that will require Canadians realizing, yeah, it's not just a choice between our system and the American system. There's a lot of different choices out
1: there. Right, and we already have a little bit of that. So I always use the example of the Shouldice Clinic, a world-class clinic that does hernia operations. I think that's all they do, hernia operations. And people come from around the world to the Shouldice Clinic, and they're just like five minutes from where I live, so that's why it's always top of mind. They're private. So the idea of introducing more of that, I mean, and yet it's covered by OHIP, so more So this idea of multiple providers, you can still have a single payer, which is the government, but multiple providers that creates efficiencies and competition and it creates excellence. So we just we simply need to introduce more of that. But that's going to that would cause that or that would require what a a change to the Canada Health Act, right?
8: Yeah, I mean, it's it's already kind of shaky because the government provides exceptions or, or just kind of looks the other way when it's politically convenient. But certainly, you know, there are some some barriers in place because of that. Uh, Provinces are not able to, you know, fully experiment or try private services to the extent they would want. But I think another thing we have to do is is think about health differently in the country, you know, long term as well. You know, we have uh, the school system, for example. You know, we have growing rates of childhood and youth obesity. Um, You know, a lot you see a lot of younger people, you know, people, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s who are really not, not healthy, you know, we're kind of getting less and less healthy each generation. And so how is it that we spend so much money on the public school system, people, you know, kids spend years in that system, and then they emerge, you know, physically unhealthy. So I think we need to really look at increasing physical education, you know, nutrition education, um, you know, diets, and just the importance of that, I know there's a lot of political correctness around, you know, talking about diets and weight. But it's a real problem. If we're all paying for each other's healthcare, then each of us I think also has a responsibility to, you know, within reason, be as healthy and fit as we can. And we somehow we don't emphasize that as a society. So we have socialized health care but not socialized fitness and that kind of creates a, a weird situation where, you know, there's yeah, the less healthy we become, the more the more it's gonna cost.
1: Great ideas You got a lot of them That's why we have you On the program Spencer Fernando SpencerFernando.com Thank you my friend You have a great Long weekend
8: You too Take care
1: Alright When we come back A little fact check this
5: You're listening To the Richard Serrett Show On Newstalk Saga 960 AM
4: How do we determine What is true What is false
2: And what is misleading
1: Fact check this all right. Actually, we might want to fact check this because I don't know if this is legit, but someone uh, posted this video on uh, social media and it it looks and sounds like a um, a tourist promotional ad from Russia, except that it's not for tourism. They're actually trying to get people to move to Russia Now, you have a listen to this. The person who posted it swears it's not a parody. It's the real deal. I don't know where they found it, but you have a listen.
5: This is Russia. Delicious cuisine. Beautiful women. Cheap gas. Rich history. World famous literature unique architecture, fertile soil, cheap electricity and water, ballet, cheap taxi and delivery, traditional values, Christianity, no cancel culture, hospitality, vodka, economy and thousands of sanctions time to move to Russia don't delay winter is coming (laughs) when you put it like that it
1: sounds pretty good Uh, I I don't know Uh, what do you hear what do you know is that actually legit if you uh, if you do know something if you've heard something let me know either way a person again who posted this swears it's not a parody and, uh, I mean, you just heard the audio. If you see the video, it looks very professionally well done. But, you know, anyone could take images and edit them together and put some narration there. Who knows? Uh, anyway, if you want to send me a, uh, a line, Richard at Saga960am.ca. Richard at Saga960am.ca. What do you hear? What do you know about that Russian uh, promotion? Incidentally, I keep forgetting to remind you. The new website. Check it out. The TheRichardSarrettShow.com. All right. So um, here's something else I found on Twitter. And it's uh, James McLeod. I don't know who James McLeod is. Anyway, he posted this. Okay, he writes. So Tim Hortons spent more than a year silently and illegally tracking users through their mobile app. And the proposed class action settlement is, wait for it, a free coffee and donut. And then he posts, I I, I believe he received this notification. Dear Tim Hortons guest, and it's got the Tim Hortons letterhead or whatever on it. Dear Tim Hortons guest, you are receiving this email in connection with a proposed settlement subject to court of approval of a national class action lawsuit involving Tim Horton's app and the collection of geolocation data between April 1, 2019 and September 30, 2020. As part of the proposed settlement agreement, eligible app users will receive a free hot beverage and a free baked good. Distribution details will be provided following approval in the event that the court approves the settlement. This settlement may affect your rights, whether you act or not. Please read the following notice carefully. Wow. Okay, so this is their proposed settlement. And I'm just reading this online now, this story, because I, I'd heard about this where Tim Hortons was caught tracking people's uh, users of their app, their geolocation data. I didn't know all the details, So Tim Horton says it's reached a proposed settlement in a multiple class action lawsuit alleging the restaurant's mobile app violated customer privacy, which would see the restaurant offer a free coffee and donut to affected users. So this is no joke. The company says the settlement negotiated with the legal teams involved in the lawsuit still requiring court approval. The coffee and donut chain says the deal would see eligible app users receive a free hot beverage and baked good. Tim Horton says in court documents, it would also permanently delete any geolocation information it may have, have located between or sorry, collected between April 1, 2019 and September 30, 2020, and direct third-party services providers to do the same. The proposed settlement comes after an investigation by federal and provincial privacy watchdogs found the mobile ordering app violated the law. By collecting vast amounts of location information from customers. In a report released last month, Privacy Commissioner said people who downloaded the Tim Hortons app had their movements tracked and recorded every few minutes, even when the app was not open on their phones. So, a class action lawsuit ensued, and their proposed settlement a free coffee and donut. How typical! How typical! yet another reason never to go to Tim Hortons. They're Tim camps for underprivileged kids. They're segregating them. Well, not segregating them. They're um, discriminating. If you're underprivileged and you're not vaccinated, no camp for you. Despite the fact that everyone else has lifted their vaccine mandates. So you, you couple that despicable policy With this, you violated the privacy rights of I don't know how many Canadians and your proposed settlement is a free coffee and donut? Absolutely disgraceful. All right. Can't go to Tim Hortons. Can't go to uh, Starbucks. They're anti-Christian. Religious bigots. The coffee I have at home is much better. All right. When we come back, the SOFA Cinephile takes a look at a, uh, a new DVD relay release of Raging
5: Bull. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 9:60 a.m. The SOFA Cinephile on The Richard Serrett Show. Bull.
2: Let's hear it for the great Jake LaMotta, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the best. I can take him more than
5: anybody. You're dead. You're
1: married. Leave the young girls for me. There's
2: no way I'm going down. I don't go down for nobody.
10: Listen, with why does he have to make it so hard on himself?
2: you beat Trigger Ray, you'll get a shot at the time. You feel that way?
0: There's no one else around who wants to fight me.
2: They're all afraid. There's a lot of bad things, Joey. Maybe it's coming back to me.
1: Ah, there we go. The trailer for a great film. One of the classics, I think, of all time. Raging Bull from 1980 and uh, just... Re-released on 4K on DVD. Here to tell us more. Jim Salas, the sofa cinephile. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm great, Richard. How are you? Terrific. It's been ages since I've seen this film. It's a classic. It's got to be up there. I think my top 10.
3: Uh, It ranks on just about every list of the best 50 or 100 films you can find. So it's widely considered one of the greatest films ever made.
1: Right. And for those that don't know the story of Raging Bull, what's it about? Well, it's based on Jake LaMotta's
3: autobiography, and uh, he was a famous, or some would say infamous boxer, who was world middleweight champ from 1949 to 1951. And he liked to fight with his family, with his friends, with the mob, with himself. He fought 106 times, won 83, and had 30 KOs. At one point, he fought four major fights in six weeks. Wow. Best known for his six-fight rivalry with Sugar Ray Robinson. Mm, He was married seven times. (laughs) And he learned to fight as a kid when his father would make him fight other neighborhood kids in the Bronx. And the adults would toss money into the ring, which his dad would use to help pay the rent. Oh, wow. Wow. Sadly, he passed away in 2017 at the ripe old age of 95. So all the pounding didn't seem to hurt him much.
1: Yeah, he could really take a punch. I mean, I don't know. He he that he was so feared, I think, in the ring. Nobody wanted to fight Jake LaMotta.
3: He was a brawler. I mean, he would he would chase you down in the ring and he just was relentless
1: coming out, coming
3: right after you. And so he would take punishment coming in to try to take you out.
1: And uh, this is, of course, directed by the great Martin Scorsese. Now, did Scorsese say that this was the that this was going to be his last film?
3: Indeed, he did say that. And the backstory is that he had made Taxi Driver with De Niro, which was wi- wildly popular. And then he made New York, New York, a musical with Lazzaminelli, which was a flop. And as a result, he became severely depressed, addicted to cocaine, had many wild parties trying to, you know, uh, help himself out of his problems. But the result is he ended up nearly dead in the hospital. And he credits De Niro with, with saving his, his life. De Niro went to the hospital and told him, please choose life and let's meet Raging Bull together. Wow. So, So he... They decided to make the film, and while making it, his health was still very precarious, and he actually thought this might be his very last film.
1: Wow, I would never heard that story before.
3: Yeah, and another interesting health angle to, to the production is what De Niro put himself through. He wanted to learn to be a boxer, so he trained for months to get in shape, and he went over a 1,000 rounds sparring with Jake LaMotta himself. Holy smokes. So learn his moves and, and be able to, uh, to depict them properly on screen. And then to gain the weight needed to look the part of the older, overweight Lamata, they stopped production for four months. And De Niro ate nonstop traveling through Italy and France and put on 60 pounds in four months.
1: Sixty pounds in four months. That's right, because he played Lamada later in life. When didn't Lamada like turn into like a, a he had like a, sh- a one man show in Las Vegas or something?
3: He did that for a bit, and then he opened his own nightclub in uh, in Florida, where he would do like a stand up act. Oh wow! And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened.
1: Sixty so, pounds in four months. Sixty
3: pounds, so he had trouble breathing. You know, so they they couldn't do as many takes as they could. They were worried he might have a heart attack because of all the weight he put on so rapidly. Wow, but, that's, but um, the result is arguably Spurcey's and De Niro's best film. Yeah, yeah. nominated for eight Academy Awards, one, two, and uh, uh, it's on the list of just about every list of best film ever made. It really, it's fa- it's a fantastic movie,
1: right? And of, uh, of course, um, uh, Joe Pesci, the great Joe Pesci, uh, that was his film debut.
3: Yeah, oh, was it his big film breakthrough? Yeah, he, at the time he he was he was trying to break into films, but when they when they cast him, he was working at a restaurant. So
1: (laughs) amazing. Amazing. So how does it look in 4K?
3: It looks uh, great in 4K. And some may wonder, is, you know, 4K worth it for a black and white film? And in this instance, it really is. Uh, The remaster was supervised by Scorsese and and Schoonmaker, who was the original editor. Uh, It looks perfect. The resolution detail is fantastic. And the high dynamic range of the 4K format Brings out the blackest blacks, the whitest whites, and all the shades of gray in between. The result being the film pops off the screen. It doesn't look flat
1: like some black and white films can. Right, right. It really looks great. All right. Raging Bull. And this is part of the Criterion Collection, right?
3: Part of the Criterion Collection. And to their credit, uh, Criterion has added a whole ton of extras to this, to this uh, release. You've got commentaries from uh, Scorsese, LaMata himself. You've got interviews with uh, one of his uh, real wives and the actress who played his wife. You've got uh, boxers on, uh, from documentaries reminiscing about what it was like to uh, to fight with uh, with Jake. So
1: it's it's absolutely loaded. All right, now you have a two disc collector's edition on DVD of uh, uh, of Raging Bull to give away. I do, and the question is: name the boxer whose nickname was the Raging Bull. All right, that's. We mentioned it already. So if you were paying attention, you win. All you need to do, I'll take the first correct answer. All you need to do is email me at Richard at Saga960am.ca. Richard at Saga960am.ca. I'll take the first correct answer and you'll win a two-disc collector's edition on DVD of Raging Bull. There you go. The Sofa Cinephile. You've done it again. Great, great job, Jim.
3: Thanks, Richard. Take care.
1: All right. You too. Bye for now. Have a great long weekend.
5: First we filled your mind. Now, let's twist it. This is... <laughs> the Limb Riddler.
1: He's back. It's Friday. Good times. That devilish hey, wordsmith, the Limb Riddler. How are you, buddy? Not bad. Yourself? Very well, very well. Still up Good. at the cottage?
11: Yeah, still. You can tell by my background,
1: right? <laughs> I can. I can. That uh, That wonderful wood paneling. It just screams cottage. All right. Uh, For those who are, you know, maybe new to the program and uh, aren't familiar with how limb riddles work, explain.
11: Well, you're trying to solve for one word. Uh, There are four clues in the limb riddle, and they all seem to point to different things. But that's because the word has different meanings. So I'm going to read the limb riddle for you. The easiest way to solve these, of course, is to read along with me. And the way to do that is to go to the website. So if you go to limriddles.com and go to the homepage, you'll see what I'm uh, what I'm reading.
1: All right. And uh, when you hear the uh, when you hear the clue and then you have you think in your mind, the one word answer, you're going to send it to info at limbriddles.com info at limbriddles.com And uh, we'll uh, reveal the answer just before the news at six and I'll uh, announce the names of the winners. All right. Here we go with this week's lim riddle clues. Uh, this week's is
11: called "Drawn by Horses," and it goes goes like this: Drawn by draft horses and chopped into chunks. Stations assigned in the barracks and bunks. What's worth two bits that a coke machine fits? Holes having have having hemi half hunks.
1: <laughs> wow, that's brilliant. That's holes brilliant. is holes are spelled w h o
11: l. E-S. So holes having have having hemi
1: have hunks. Holes. Yes, as in the whole thing. W exactly. h o l e s. Holes having halved having hemi have hunks. Say that three times fast. All right. Uh, again, be listening just before the news at six when I reveal the answer of this week's limb riddle. Limb Riddler. You have a great long weekend. You too, sir. Bye All for right. now. Bye for now.
5: Puzzle, the Lim Riddler, every Friday at 4:50 on the Richard Serrett Show on Saga
1: 960 AM. All right, hour two awaits. We'll hear from uh, John O'Connor, U.S. trial lawyer. We'll talk about how the FBI closed hunt the uh, Hunter Biden probe, just claiming it was leaked Russian disinfo. Uh, that plus uh, Dr. Steve Turley will drop by. The Great Greg Carrasco, host of the Great Carrasco Show, with there is something happening here, and much more. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga
3: 960 AM or its management.
2: Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show.
3: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell as hell, and
5: I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be
4: intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. I'm
5: not feeding. we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country
9: through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for
11: himself it. after
9: centuries of fighting. You're out of order! You're out of
5: order! The whole tribe!
1: and you will atone. Hey, welcome to hour two, and if you missed hour one, you missed a lot, but as I always say, don't despair. There's still plenty of great programming coming your way, and uh, that'll include a a repeat performance from uh, earlier this week. Art Moore, author at WND, will be here.
0: is running out this message is paid for by lines for fair and equitable policy for the ones who get it done the most important part is the one you need now and
9: the best partner is the one who can deliver that's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, because we have professional grade supplies for every industry even hard to find products and we have same day pickup and next day delivery on most orders but most importantly we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running Call clickgranger.com
7: or just stop by, Granger for the ones who get it done.
1: Trump's uh, plan. This comes from an inside source. I guess someone close to him uh, or his campaign. If he's reelected in 2024, Donald Trump plans on reintroducing an executive order that would allow him basically to purge the deep state. It's called Schedule F, and he would it would give him the authority. Uh, by reclassifying, I guess, um, federal employees in the deep, deep state, it would give him the, the authority to fire them. All of those, and there are, you know, what, two million federal employees, many of them in uh, in Washington, many of them, of course, deliberately tried to sabotage the president during his uh, his first term. So... If he gets reelected, he'll reintroduce this executive order, and hopefully that will allow him to drain the swamp, art more coming up. Greg Carrasco, of course, our good friend, host of the Greg Carrasco show heard here on saga 960 every Saturday morning from 8 to 11. I'm going to revisit this topic about uh, Tim Horton's the coffee Donut chain, caught red-handed using their app and tracking the, uh, the geolocation of their app users. I don't know how many Canadians were affected. That's clearly an invasion of privacy uh, and uh, and so their proposed settlement for all of those people that that had their privacy invaded a free hot beverage and a baked good how typically Canadian uh, all right and dr. Steve Turley will be here well we'll revisit an earlier conversation with uh, dr. Steve Turley a passionate uh, a voice for conservative populism and we'll talk about uh, what's happening in the Netherlands Sri Lanka Italy really spreading across the world now uh, and also why the left is trying to cancel his documentary uh, but first it's um, it's becoming pretty apparent how corrupt the FBI and the Justice Department is in the United States according to an FBI whistleblower the uh, bureau the FBI closed an investigation on Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop and then leaked to the media the false claim that the evidence in the hard drive contained uh, evidence that it was an international influence peddling scheme. Sorry, um, that, that it was part of a Russian disinformation campaign. The evidence of the laptop was pretty clear that Biden Hunter Biden and his dad, then vice president, were part of an international influence peddling scheme. But the FBI leaked this to the uh, this idea to the media that this was nothing more than a Russian disinformation campaign, which was absolutely false. So if these allegations are true, the Justice Department and the FBI are and have been institutionally corrupted to the very core. Someone who knows a little bit about uh, corruption in the FBI and the Justice Department, John O'Connor, U.S. trial lawyer, author of The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened, and uh, Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. John, welcome back. How are you?
7: Hey, good, Richard. How you doing?
1: I'm very well. Very well. So... um how do you How do you look at this story? I mean, if this whistleblower is true, and he went to Senator Grassley of Iowa and and told him this, um I mean, how would this, for example, compare to Watergate in your estimation?
7: Well, I mean, there's no comparison. Look, here's what we've got here. first of all, we we have an abject, corrupt dismissal. What the FBI did was one of these fellows did it. He closed the case in a way that did not allow its reopening. And as there are ways that you can put a file on hold on suspension. And so what this fellow did, I think it was the head guy named Tim Tebow. Not the football player, but he <laughs> put in the, uh, some sort of a code that would tell anybody else that this case was closed. And it was not that wasn't appropriate. Nobody had made the right determinations. He just did that. Okay, so that's number one. But the more important, and, and that's obviously corrupt, that's why I did, hoping nobody would notice. The, the thing that is more troublesome to me is that, let's go back, we all know that these 30 people or so, the former national security intelligence officials, had all said, oh, this is possible, this Russian disinformation. Now, nobody ever thought to say, how did they get the Im- basis on, wh- on which to conclude it? Did they simply read the papers that you and I did, the internet sites? No, apparently they were leaked a bunch of inside information from this fellow that put it together under Tebow. His name was Brian Otten. And he came up with this spurious idea that it was Russian disinformation. And his analysis made no sense. Uh, you know, it just, it just, it, it was very easy to verify uh, what was on the laptop is being sold. but he came up with this thing with this analysis and then he leaked that to these past officials who had security clearances then they come, came up with this opinion the media then followed like sheep so this is typical of what's happening in Washington now you have this combination of the media and the deep state and the politi- and a certain political party all combining so uh, what's terrible about it is, think about it, the exercise in determining that something is disinformation is a counterintelligence project. It's a national security project, highest levels of security. No one, that should never see the light of day at all. Trump was criticized once for saying, you know, something about uh, an air base or something. And, some, and one of his critics said, oh, that's national security information. He's releasing our sources and methods. Well, this is more than releasing something that hints at a source of method. It's the actual finding itself, supposedly. So you talk about a breach. And of course, the whole idea, the whole exercise was just political in the first place. So there was no real uh, need to do this from a counterintelligence point of view. Nobody really w- w- would suggest this laptop was Russian disinformation nor was there an issue as to it. But the use of our now we're using national security information, spy agency stuff, and we're uh, weaponizing that against the president. And remember, Russia Gate itself was not a criminal investigation. Comey made it seem like it was. They intended it to be at some time, but it was basically a counterintelligence information, which you can. Open up at the drop of a hat if you have a suspicion. It's a much lower standard to open up a counterintelligence investigation because we don't need rock-solid proof that so-and-so is spying on us. We have a suspicion that China is, so we open up a file. Uh, uh, We all get that. So that's what Comey was doing in Russiagate, misusing the national security powers of the United States, which are broad and vast, One second, which are broad and vast, and weaponizing them politically. So it's bad enough that you would weaponize the criminal process politically. That's always been the fear of every civil libertarian that somebody's going to get in there and indict their political enemies. This is far worse. This is using these vast powers, which are not constrained by the Constitution, or at least the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights does not limit what you can do under national security. You can break into people's houses, and that's the way it is. You can kill Hitler if you want to. Uh, so, this is a real troubling thing when you combine politics and national security powers uh, and a compliant media. I mean, wow, where are we? Where are we now, Richard? In this country,
1: precisely. Um, if the this influence peddling scheme. Uh, is in fact a national security issue or a national security threat. I mean, if we have the big guy, Joe Biden, now sitting in the White House, uh compromised because of uh, these dealings, perhaps to communist China. And and yet that investigation into that influence peddling scheme was quashed by the FBI. Uh, I mean, what, what, what do we say now about the FBI? I mean, is it corrupt beyond redemption? Do, do we have does the next president have to come in and just like burn it down and start over?
7: Well, I think if someone has to look at the leadership and really do an assessment of leadership, um, Comey, when Comey came in, he had some good guys in there. And he immediately got rid of them. And as soon as Hillary's Hillary got in trouble, he realized he needed political hatchet men. Andrew McCabe had one of the most meteoric rises of anyone. He's a regular guy in the New York office. And all of a sudden, he becomes the number two guy in Washington. I mean, he has a couple steps in between, but it's very quick. A couple of very good, solid, longtime guys, savvy agents. Comey figured out how to get rid of because he didn't want those guys around when he did his dirty deeds. He knew he had to dismiss all these charges against Hillary. That was his main thing. I don't, I think at the time he didn't realize he was going to also, excuse me, go after Trump. Hmm. That occurred later, of course.
1: What about Ray,
7: the current head? Well, he seems a little wobbly to me. He seems (laughs) like uh, when uh, push comes to shove, he seems to go in the wishy-washy lefty direction and doesn't do much. He drags his feet on a lot of requests. Um, and it's, he may be, it may indicate a whole culture that he is serving because normally a guy in that position is serving his top brass and as they all expect him to be carrying their water for him. So it may well be that a house cleaning at the top is required. I still think most of the agents and there are thousands out there are really solid guys. Um, it, 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 the problem is is that the the um, Comeys of the world the McCabes of the world have realized you can get to the top by political machinations
1: all right well it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, when uh, the midterms come and there's a a, 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 a GOP majority in the, uh, the House and the Senate, and then there'll be real uh, oversight, and there'll be hearings on all of this, I'm, I'm quite sure. Uh, John O'Connor is the author of The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. Go to postgatebook.com, postgatebook.com, and also, uh, I believe, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. It's available there?
3: Right. It's the fantastic. Mysteries of Watergate.
1: All right. Check it out. John, as always, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. All right, when we come back, Dr. Steve Turley, stay with us.
5: The bull session continues on the Richard Serrett Show News Talk Saga nine hundred and sixty AM. All right, the uh,
1: the latest country to rise up against their government is Panama.
0: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
1: The people of Panama protesting their socialist government over uh, rising food prices. I mean, it's out of control. Inflation there is out of control. So, Panama joins the ranks of Italy. They're also up in arms. Well, they're not armed, but they are... Taking it to the streets, as only the Italians can do, and the uh, the coalition of uh, Prime Minister uh, Draghi, who is uh, kind of a globalist technocrat, it's collapsed, and he has offered his resignation. So that uh, govern- that country looks like it's about ready to go to the polls once again, and a um, a coalition of populist right wing parties are expected to win. So you've got Panama, you have Italy. We know what's happening in the Netherlands, of course. Germany, a number of strikes there and farmers protesting in allegiance with their Dutch farming brothers. Spain, huge protests now in Spain. All of this, all of these examples are, according to Dr. Steve Turley, further evidence that we are nearing the, the end of the liberal globalist era. And uh, we're hoping uh, Dr. Steve Turley will join us momentarily. Dr. Turley is uh, also trying to... Well, he has screened a, uh, his documentary, The Return of the American Patriot, The Rise of Pennsylvania, despite the fact that um, on a number of occasions... Uh, the theater where his uh, documentary was supposed to debut canceled the event in the like the eleventh hour after being pressured by uh, certain woke groups. I, I believe they managed to screen it at a, a, a church, but but uh, they're hoping for um, bigger and better audiences. So, Dr. Steve Turley will uh, join us soon. We hope. Now, before we get to that, Dr. Fauci now has announced that he's uh, going to step down before or before the uh, the end of the uh, Joe Biden's first term. So, sometime between now and 24, 2024. Here he is in this uh, rather revealing piece of audio, basically acknowledging that the COVID vaccine may soon or may still turn out to be a complete failure. Have a listen.
6: I'm a volunteer for a phase one trial to see if it's safe. That's the fastest that's ever been done. That's the good news. The challenging news is that even at that rocket speed, it's going to take a few months to show that the initial safety is okay. Then you go into a phase two trial, which instead of involving 45 people, which we have in the phase one trial, it involves hundreds, if not thousands of people. That will take another six to eight months to even know if it works. So at the fastest we can go, it's going to take a year to a year and a half to know if we have a vaccine that we can use there's another element to safety and that is if you vaccinate someone and they make an antibody response and then they get exposed and infected, does the response that you induce actually enhance the infection and make it worse? And the only way you'll know that is if you do an extended study, not in a normal volunteer who has no risk of infection, but in people who are out there in a risk situation. This would not be the first time if it happened that a Vaccine that looked good in initial safety actually made people worse. It was the history of the respiratory syncytial virus vaccine in children, which paradoxically made the children worse. One of the HIV vaccines that we tested several years ago actually made individuals more likely to get infected. So you can't just go out there and give it.
1: Um, There you go. This wouldn't be the first time, referring to the COVID vaccine, that the vaccine actually ended up making... People sicker. That's quite a startling admission. I'm wondering if that has anything to do with his announcement that uh, he will resign at some point during the, uh, the first term of the Biden administration. Let's hope it's one term and one term only. All right. Dr. Steve Turley uh, has joined us. We're just up against a break here. Uh, Dr. Steve, first of all, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm well, Richard. Thank you so much for having me again. My pleasure. We're going to take a time out here. When we come back, I want to ask you about the uh, the current status of uh, your documentary, The Return of the American Patriot, The Rise of Pennsylvania. I know the left has tried to, uh, to cancel you on a number of occasions, a number of theaters backed out in the 11th hour after being pressured by, you know, the, the woke mob. Um, and I also want to get your take on what is happening around the world. The Netherlands, the latest, I guess, would be Panama, where they're uh, rising up against their socialist government. It's just it's uh, it's happening. Now, all over the world. Uh, back with more of my conversation with Dr. Steve Turley, turleytalks.com. Stay with us.
5: Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 a.m. All right, welcome back.
1: Dr. Steve Turley, a passionate voice for conservative populism and, of course, the uh, very popular, wildly popular YouTube channel, Dr. Steve Turley, uh, closing in on 900,000 subscribers. And then, of course, you've got TurleyTalks.com and a new documentary, The Return of the American Patriot. Uh, Dr. Steve, the left have tried to shut you down. What is the status Have you? Have you been able to screen your documentary yet?
9: We sure have, Richard. It was, uh, it was actually wonderful. Um, We did on Saturday. It was originally scheduled for July the 16th that uh, just this past Saturday. And um, we, of course, we got shut down twice. Uh, The, uh, the woke mob cry bullied, uh, owners of different establishments and venues to cancel us after we signed a contract with them, um, sadly. Uh, and the first one was an IMAX theater that was, uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania that sat 400 people and we, uh, sold out of tickets really quick, just, uh, within hours. But then, uh, they canceled us just days before the, uh, scheduled premiere, then we got another location at the Wyndham Hotel that's at 800, so we were able to offer double the tickets. That sold out, and uh, unfortunately, the threats and the intimidation and the uh, bullying tactics to the left really ratched up and, and, uh, and, and got uh, quite out of hand, and so the manager of the hotel there said uh, we can't we can't put our guests at risk. So we got canceled again. And then God bless them. Uh, the pastors of Christ Community Church in Camp Hill, just uh, outside of Lancaster, came in. They have a twelve hundred seat um, sanctuary. And they opened it up to us, and we sold out of the tickets, and uh, the result was that we had our premiere on Saturday night, as scheduled, with Senator Doug Mastriano there, who's the um, gubernatorial candidate for the Republican Party in Pennsylvania. It was absolutely amazing. People loved it. They got a standing ovation. The church was wonderful. We had about 60 volunteers. They decked out the whole sanctuary, and uh, we had a massive screen uh movie size screen with a great sound system and uh very patriotic a lot of red white and blue everywhere and it was just beautiful and those pastors stood their ground they were threatened with uh you know irs action uh people were going to report them because we've got something called the johnson amendment which was passed by, uh, by uh, lyndon johnson sponsored by lyndon johnson because back in the 60s because he didn't like The fact that churches were speaking out against him. So it's basically a gag order. A church isn't supposed to um, campaign on behalf of any politician, though it happens all the time, particularly in our inner city churches where Democrat leaders come like the Sunday before an election and basically preach a sermon. It's it's ridiculous. But they didn't back down. They stood their ground. And uh, we had an amazing night of over twelve hundred patriots and only about six or seven protesters in the end.
4: All right. Well,
1: that's great news. Uh, Any plans for wider distribution of the return of the American Patriot?
9: Yeah, we're uh, we're in talks now to do a streaming of it, just like uh, 2000 Mules. Uh, We're going to use that as sort of our model for streaming. And then there's several other areas in Pennsylvania that want to host uh, a screening of it. Um, with, uh, you know, just a great gathering of patriots coming together. And, uh, and th- those are venues that are, are cancel proof. They, these are the people who actually own the venues and say more or less, come on, bring it on, you know, uh, the, the
1: more the merrier. Uh, We just have a few minutes here, but I just wanted to get your take on uh, we're all familiar with what's happening, obviously, in the Netherlands and and Germany and Poland are are sort of showing their allegiance to the Dutch farmers. Now it's uh, now we see we're seeing widespread protests in Spain and most recently in in Panama. Uh, Now, on on a recent video, you said that these are all telltale signs that the uh, the end of the liberal globalist era is at hand. What do you mean?
9: Yeah, we are. We're starting to see the end of of the cheap money model uh, that was dominant over uh, the the global economy. So uh, whether we're talking about Sri Lanka or even Italy's government collapsing, Panama, you brought it out. Well, any debtor nation is basically in trouble right now. And that's because the Davos model more or less spread cheap money, low interest rates all over the global south. Uh, lending them all this, all this kind of cash, particularly with Sri Lanka. But the conditions were that the governments, you know, they more or less they had to go woke, they had to go liberal, they had to, they had to push sort of this Soros-based Davos-based conception of the world. Then, when the world economy started tanking a few months back, that very same Davos crowd, because the dollars, their god, you know, the Davos crowd started making a run on the loans. And then nations like Sri Lanka, now Panama, they just can't pay them back. And so they imploded. And then in the case of you know Britain with Boris resigning and Italy uh, now with Draghi resigning, I mean, inflation and fuel costs are just going through the roof. People have had it and they're rebelling. And we're just finding that if the world is run by food, fuel, and finance, and if Davos crowd thought that controlling finance meant you can control the world, we're now finding out that the uprising is is has been triggered by the fact that food and fuel actually run the world, not currency. You can't eat your currency, you can't heat your home with currency. Uh, you need commodities, and so the the whole model of the Davos crowd. Uh, is basically collapsing. Cash no longer matters. Now we need commodity. We need food, fuel, fertilizer, and so forth. And ironically, that means going towards Russia, eastern Ukraine, China, and India, and and Europe just has no choice anymore uh, in the matter. Davos is helpless in the midst of all this.
1: Dr. Steve Turley, turleytalks.com. And don't forget the YouTube channel, Dr. Steve Turley. Steve, always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And congratulations uh, for the success of the return of the American patriot. Thank you so much, Richard. God bless you, man. God bless you.
0: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that overpolicing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with the menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
1: All right. When we come back, the great Greg Carrasco
5: will be here. Stay with us. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show, News Talk Saga, nine sixty a.m.
1: All right, I'll just jump in here. <laughs> we were waiting for that. There's something happening here. Oh, that's all right. We'll save that for next week. Uh, (laughs) There is something happening here always when uh, Greg Carrasco drops by, the host of The Greg Carrasco Show, heard right here on Saga 960, Saturday mornings, 8 to 11. Greg, how are you? Fresh off vacation, looking tanned and trim and well-rested?
2: You know, I... um it was, an, it was a very interesting trip, Richard. Uh, you can hear me, right? Yes, I can. Okay. The, um, one of the things that I discovered, Richard, when I was down in uh, I was on a business trip in Mexico just a couple of weeks ago is that uh, COVID is not a Mexican thing. It, it doesn't seem to exist. And uh, I, being fortunate enough to speak the language, I was speaking to some locals while I was there. And uh, they can actually recognize Canadian immediately. And they are the only ones wearing masks and uh (laughs) and 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 these are just not regular locals these are executives that i i was speaking to and uh what they say is that uh, canadians are the most hysterical about uh this COVID situation that we have in canada but uh you know honestly i for the first time i felt embarrassed that uh, canadians were being singled out overseas by being COVID paranoid, it was a very, very interesting experience, uh, Richard. I'll say,
1: yes. Well, we're the country that uh, it's it's all about risk aversion and uh, safety first, even above uh, ind- individual liberties, which is it's a sad commentary. You're right. I've got to ask you about this. Tim Hortons. Mm-hmm. So Tim Hortons, uh, they, they have this app and they got caught. Uh, they were basically um, collecting geolocation data on the app users. So basically they were like stalking their, their users. So this happened between April of 2019 and September, 2020. Uh, you know, the privacy commissioner uh, came in and said, you know, this is, this is illegal. You can't do this. So now there's this class action lawsuit. Tim Horton's proposed settlement to all of the people that had their privacy violated a free hot beverage and a baked good. What is it with I mean, I contrast that with you, Greg, and, and I know you have this uh, thing where, pe- you know, if people will sell you their card. You'll give them a uh, like a credit card with a thousand dollars on it for, for, to buy gas. I mean, that's yes. that's the way you take care of your customers. Contrast that with Tim Hortons. What the heck is wrong with these
7: people?
2: I, I think that, uh, you know, long are the days that, uh, that people could trust trust the benevolence of the multinational corporation. I mean, we, we, we need to, at some point, we need to come to the realization, Richard, that, that the corporate, you know, being a capitalist, it doesn't mean that you're pro-corporation. I am pro-business, which is different. Right. And uh, the corporation seems to have made an unholy alliance with governments these days in which they can get away with things that you could never dreamed of getting away 20, 30 years ago, simply because there were some actual repercussions to this. Now, also, as citizens, we cannot be this naive into thinking that you are providing all your personal information for this, again, benevolent corporation that is going to do absolutely nothing with it. But I can tell you this, (laughs) if uh, Tim Hortons wanted to look after somebody, it wouldn't be with a small coffee. Exactly.
1: I mean, getting caught doing this is one thing. You know, with this app that was tracking people, but you know, it's like when when uh, we had that major outage with Rogers, and they were offering mm-hmm. people like what was it, like five or seven dollars uh, for the day in compensation? Five? That's better mm-hmm. than that's worse than nothing. That's like mocking them. That's a slap in the face. Same with you know, you're offering these people as a settlement in a class action lawsuit, a hot co- or a hot beverage and a baked good. That's that's worse than nothing at all because it's like you're mocking them.
2: It's in, it's insulting, and I can tell you. I mean, these are the, some of the side effects of uh, being in a in a system that uh, that provides the ability for companies to generate monopolies. I mean, if you look at, uh, at you know that situation that happened with Rogers, we are so severely overcharged for our cell phones here in Canada because we have collusion. We have two or three major companies, and uh, the CRTC does not allow to have competition coming into the country. And you know, Rogers has nothing to lose. What are they going to lose? Customers? They have 30% of the market anyways. So, you know, you and I don't mean anything to them.
1: And it's only going to get worse because Rogers wants to uh, swallow up Shaw. All right. Very quickly, what's coming up on the Greg Carrasco show tomorrow morning?
2: I have never been a big fan of leasing, Richard, but now this is becoming insidious. Uh, manufacturers are taking customers, leasing their vehicles in a way to trap them, and they will never have automotive freedom again. If you want to know how they're doing this, tune into the show tomorrow morning. It's pretty crazy what's happening out there, Richard. Wow.
1: Appointment tune, for sure. The Greg Carrasco Show, Saga 960, a.m. till 11 a.m. Greg, you have a great long weekend.
2: You as well. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Richard. Talk to you All soon. Right.
1: All right. All the best. When we come back, Bye. Art Moore, we'll talk about the executive order Trump could use if he's reelected in 2024, which would finally drain the swamp. Stay
5: with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back.
1: How often did we hear between 2016 and 2020 President Trump, 45, as he is affectionately known, talk about draining the swamp? And it never got done. Never got done. And then in the dying days of his administration, he signed an executive order, which would have given him the power to purge. What is known as the administrative state or the deep state, the swamp, and then of course that was uh, overturned quickly by the incoming president Joe Biden. Now we're hearing rumblings that if Trump runs again in 2024, which seems to be almost a certainty at this point, and he wins, and if you if you look at the polls, that also seems quite likely that he would. Resign or reintroduce an executive order that would allow him to fire or purge the administrative state. Art Moore is an author at WND and co-author of the best-selling book "See Something, Say Nothing." Art, welcome back. How are you? Hey, thank you,
10: Richard. Doing well, thanks.
1: So, this, what does this executive order um, do exactly? Like, m- my understanding is, you know, when a new administration comes in, they can, they can you know, um, sort of fire the top couple layers, like obviously, you know, the uh, the Secretary of of State and maybe the Deputy or the Assistant Secretary of State. But then beneath those layers, there's like a, a permanent... Bureaucracy and those people have been in 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 their position for some in some cases decades. So what would this executive order? Yeah, how how would it work?
10: Well, you know, first of all, there are something like two million uh, employees in various federal agencies, and every time a new president comes in, there's about four thousand positions that would be called political political appointees. And then below that, there there is uh, it's maybe fifty thousand people who have influence. Of course, among those two million, there's a lot of people that, that they don't really have influence. But there's about fifty thousand uh, estimated below those four thousand political appointees who have influence, and they, as you you said, they remain in administration after administration, and they tend to be politically uh, toward the left. They tend to, just by nature of, of being in a bureaucracy, they love bureaucracies, they want government to get bigger. So uh, what Trump um, did with with this uh, executive order was simply make it easier to fire those people. And kind of like uh, in academia where uh, professors get tenure that gives them protection, Uh, These these employees have various protections so that a new president coming in can't just fire them. And and, and Trump just wants to make it easier to remove those people in the same way that he can uh, change the 4000 people uh, who are uh, political appointees.
1: So if he were to come into office and let's say on his first day, he would he were to uh, reintroduce this executive order. Uh, and fire those people? I mean, does he have replacements ready to go? I mean, where is how is he going to fill uh, 4,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 positions in government?
10: Well, it, it, it's definitely a good question. And, and you know, the, the, the 4,000 political appointees, that usually takes months. I mean, that could even take more than a year. So th- that, that's a good question. But I, I think in principle, what's really important about this is that uh, we the people... Uh, are able to elect our representatives that go to Congress. We can elect our president. But these people who who have uh, outsized influence, people who, for example, when Congress passes a law, create the rules. And in creating those rules, they, they can uh, change what the original intent was. That's often what the case is. And oftentimes that's contested in court, but then you have – The president, you know, appointing uh, judges that that rule in the president's favor or uh, the previous administration's appointees rule against the current president. I mean, it's it's very difficult, I think, to get down to uh, the people truly governing by putting in office uh, the people they choose to make the laws. It just turns out there's this huge bureaucratic state that goes way back. I mean, you can talk about the history of it. It, I, I think FDR probably had the biggest influence it goes back, you know, maybe to to Lincoln when the civil war came about and uh, the government's uh, federal powers were increased. Maybe Woodrow Wilson is another influence, but FDR began to create this huge bureaucratic state in response to the depression. And it just not only has it not gone away, it's just gotten bigger. And, and so, you know, really, really the issue here is uh, can we take at least a step forward toward uh, restoring governance to we, the people.
1: So I would imagine that, you know, there'll be certain um, departments that he he might focus on, like uh, the State Department, uh, which seems at times, to you know, to run its own foreign policy, or at least it did when Trump was in office. Uh, You know, he had his supposedly, you know, he was supposed to be driving the car, but it seemed like at times someone else was steering the vehicle. Uh, The State Department, what, maybe the FBI? Uh, What other departments do you think he would really want to... Take the the hedge trimmers too. Well, I, I think
10: a, a, you know a huge general area is national security. So the, the CIA for one, and um, and then and then the FBI. Uh, these agencies that that were involved in in what I think is now widely understood as the Russia hoax. This idea that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia to win the election, and we see you know the, the basic premises of of that. Uh, falling apart, uh, but it was uh, these uh, top level uh, officials in these agencies who were pushing this whole false narrative, and uh, and then there were people below them, the the, the Peter uh, Strux, who you know were leading the investigation, who clearly we know from his personal communications had had personal animus toward Trump, and I think he reflected probably thousands of people in in the fbi and uh so these you know we saw the well when this hunter biden investigation uh you know surfaced um and the evidence that came out before the election that, that 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 if it would have been taken seriously would have changed the outcome of the election that you had these 50 uh former national security officials top level officials Writing this letter saying, Well, this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation when they had no evidence of of that. So, there you see very clearly the so called deep state uh, with its left leaning uh, tendencies pushing. Uh, against Trump and and actually influencing the outcome of the election.
1: Right. I mean, Trump was surrounded by saboteurs, essentially. Uh, The only question that remains for me is, and we've got about a minute here, and that is what took him so long? Why did he wait until October of 2020 to sign that? That should have been day one in 2016.
10: That's a great question, and I I don't have the answer to that. I, I think, you know, maybe, you know, in Trump's defense, he was incrementally, Uh, moving forward step by step to do something that nobody else had even tried to do. uh, And, and, you know, it's, you talk about 2 million uh, people in this bureaucracy and, uh, and and this entrenched way of life. I mean, you know, the counties surrounding Washington DC, there's like five counties they are the the richest counties in the whole nation, and you know they're surrounding a place that doesn't really produce anything, but where trillions of dollars comes through. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's just this entrenched way of life that these people uh, are, are are perpetually supporting, and uh, it's going to take uh, a lot of a lot of work, a lot of heavy lifting to to make a dent in it.
1: Well, Drain the Swamp, part two, hopefully, uh, coming up. Uh, Art Moore, author at WND. Please support independent media WND.com. He's the co-author of the best-selling book, See Something, Say Nothing, available wherever good books are sold, and, of course, at Amazon. Art, you have a great rest of the week, and thank you as always. Thank you. My pleasure, Richard. And now, your Lim Riddler answer, and this week's winners. All right, let me repeat the... uh The riddle from this week, drawn by horses, drawn by draft horses and chopped into chunks, stations assigned in the barracks and bunks, what's worth two bits that a coke machine fits, holes having halved, have in hemi-half hunks. Declan is just shrugging, no idea. Well, if he spent some time and just thought about it, I think you'd get it. The answer is quarter. Quarter, right? A quarter horse. What do you call you know, where you have barracks and bunks. Those are your quarters, right? Your quarters. What's worth two bits? A quarter is two bits. It goes into a Coke machine. Well, you need a lot of co- quarters in a Coke machine now. All right. Uh, that's it. Uh, our uh, winners this week, Paul Kitney of Peterborough, Sue Somerville, again, of Calgary, Barbara Pink of Canberra, Australia, Amy Lou Hu in Baysville, Ontario. Patricia Crumpick in Brampton. Uh, and very quickly, the uh, the winner uh, of the Raging Bull two-disc collector's edition on DVD is Joe, or sorry, Jay. I just have an initial. Jay Como of Milton. Congratulations. That's it for me. My thanks to Jody Declan. I'll be back next week to do it all over again, God willing. Now, I'm off Monday. Monday is Lord Simcoe Day. Seriously? You're celebrating the colonizer? A dead white male? Yes. Yes, I am. So, please tune in for a special best of the Richard Show presentation, and then I'll speak with you live next Tuesday at 4. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.